American soccer fans, welcome to episode 80 of the Stars and Stripes FC podcast. Donald Wine here, manager of Stars and Stripes FC, your source for all things U.S. national teams, the players that comprise them, and everything else surrounding the game of soccer in America. This week, we are hearing from you. Several listeners asked some questions about the U.S. men's national team and the women's national team, and we are going to get to a few of them on this episode. Some are more topical questions based on recent events, while some may be questions about the current state of things for American soccer. So first of all, thank you to everyone who submitted a question. I know we're not going to get to all of them, but I appreciate all of you for taking the time to ask a question for this particular episode. And again, keep them coming. We want to hear more from you. Uh, I want to hear more about what you are thinking about when it comes to the state of affairs here with U.S. soccer. Uh, whether it be the men's national team, the women's national team, all the extended national teams, youth national teams, or just the rest of the leagues, MLS, NWSL, NISA, U.S. Open Cup, whatever it is, email us, ssfcpodcasts at gmail.com. That is the place you want to send all your questions, and we will get to them on future shows as well. I want to start with a question from my friend Josh Kale, who writes in and asks, who should we pair with Walker Zimmerman at center back. And first of all, Josh, thank you for the question. I think obviously his question is having a lot to do with some of the injuries that have been uh, sprouting up around uh, the men's national team player pool over the last week or so. Miles Robinson, of course, done for the next considerable amount of time. Um, Some people have pegged it at six months or less. I am not as optimistic. Uh, He tore his Achilles. Last week, he has had surgery. He will most likely be out for the World Cup this fall. Also, Aaron Long, another center back, just got injured in the U.S. Open Cup match. I was at that match earlier this week when D.C. United took on the New York Red Bulls. He subbed off injured after about 10 minutes in that game for the Red Bulls, and it is unclear when he will be back. But now people are asking, when this June window comes up, and even this fall at the World Cup, Who's going to be the guy that goes next to Walker Zimmerman? Most people have pegged Walker Zimmerman as the main starter at center back. And I agree with that. Walker Zimmerman is the two-time MLS defender of the year. He is one of the best defenders just on in America. And he has played super, super well for National SC and our national team. I think he's the, you can pan him in as a starter at center back. But who's next to him? I think there are a couple options here. One of these options is one that seems like the next person up, provided that he is healthy, and that is Chris Richards. Chris Richards has done very well this year, and when he has been on the national team and started, we've seen a lot of him. We've seen some promise from him. Obviously, we've seen some times that have been shaky, but I think he has the moxie to step up and be that young guy that we compare with Walker Zimmerman. The next one, for me, there's obviously a few guys that I think you can that are in the mix, so to speak. Uh, James Sands, Eric Palmer Brown, Cameron Carter Vickers, who is now getting a second look at the national team. He will be called up when we get the roster for the June international double window. And then Tim Ream is obviously out there. I, I'm not a you know someone who thinks that Tim Ream should be uh, the option to pair next to Walker Zimmerman, but he's still in the mix. Let's let's leave it at that. I think uh, when it comes to Tim Ream. There's a lot of guys I think are better than him, but it doesn't matter what I think at the end. He's going to be in the conversation because Greg Berhalter likes Tim Ream and will bring him 
uh, for experience. So we'll see if he is the guy. But the guy that I think should be back in this fold, back on the national team, and back in the starting lineup is John Brooks. John Brooks honestly should not have left the national team. Did he have him, you know, a bad window in September? Absolutely. And he was the first to admit that when he was left off of the team in November, he was out in October due to injury. When he was left off in November, he has been very candid about, Hey, I need to get better. I need to work hard to get back and earn my spot. And even as recently as March, he has said that very same thing that he wants to fight for his world cup spot. He wants to fight for a spot on the team. Now that miles Robinson is done for a considerable period of time and Aaron long is also hurt. And we don't know how long he will be out. John Brooks needs to be called back in. It's it's time. This is the window that Greg Berhalter has said is the window where he can talk to John Brooks and really work with him about the deficiencies that he sees in his game and how he can work into the system. It's a two and a half week window. It's a two and a half week camp. Get John Brooks in here. Give him a chance to show that he can be the guy to pair alongside Walker Zimmerman. Because honestly, in my opinion, John Brooks is the best center back that we have. I know that guys have played better than him in recent months, but that doesn't change the fact that on paper and talent wise, I think John Brooks is one of the best center backs that we have at the position. And I think him and Walker Zimmerman have proven to be a great combo together when they've played. So I think that would be my get my pick, either Chris Richards or John Brooks, but either way, bring them both in the camp in June. If Richards is healthy, of course, and let's see, what both of them can do under the pressure. We're going to have four matches for the men's national team in June. A couple of great tests against Morocco and Uruguay, both teams that are going to the World Cup, and then Nations League against Grenada and El Salvador. Let's see who can be the guy that can pair along Walker Zimmerman. Bring those two in. Let's see what happens. So, Josh, thank you for that question. Uh, Appreciate you, man. Um, I'm going to move next to my other friend, Joe Davis, and he asked an interesting question. He asks, who's the most intriguing dual national that hasn't been called in yet? This also in reference to an article. Again, we talked about this on the last episode that Greg Berhalter is planning on calling in a dual national that has not yet debuted with the senior national team. And everybody's trying to pinpoint who that was. And we kind of hinted that it's probably going to be Malik Tillman, or at least our hunch was that it was Malik Tillman. And honestly, he's my answer for the most intriguing dual national. Why? because I haven't seen him play that much. And yes, he's played a few times for Bayern Munich and Bayern is one of the best teams on the planet. And if you're able to play for Bayern Munich, you have to be able to get some eyes on you and look, Uh, but he hasn't had enough of uh, beyond cameos for me to be able to get a full grasp of what he can bring uh, to the attacking front. And ladies and gentlemen, we need a lot of help up front. We need a lot of depth on the attacking front and, Hopefully Malik Tillman can bring it. If he is the guy that we are bringing in in June, that's great because we'll get to see firsthand what he can do with this pretty much a group of guys on the national team. But I think that is the guy also that I want to see more of. And and, and maybe it's because Byron has so many guys that are just world-class that you'd never get to see someone like that really make a debut. Remember, Chris Richards also was on Byron struggled to break through, but finally did. And then he was loaned out to Hoffenheim where he has played a lot more. So uh, Malik Tillman, that's my guy. I want to see what he can do and hopefully he can impress. Next up, 
Uh, a guy named Brian on Twitter, he sent his question on via Twitter. He is at Ocho McOcho. Um, first of all, great handle. Um, but the question that he has is, with the quality of goalkeepers in the U.S. system, how would you rate the top five in our system? And would those rankings match the likely top three for the World Cup roster? Uh, well, everyone who knows me out there knows that who I rate is going to be different than the top three. Uh, my top five and the actual likely top five are there's some guys that are the similar, but you know, the order is different for me. Uh, who will, who do I rate as the top five goalkeepers in America? You can call me Homer. You can call me whatever, but you got to call me. So uh, let me, let me give you my top five, Matt Turner, Bill Hamid, Ethan Horvath, Zach Steffen, and Gaga Slanina. I think those are the top five right now uh, in my opinion. However, I know that Bill Hamid's time on the national team has probably come and gone. I, again, I'm a homer. I think he's the best, one of the best goalkeepers I've ever seen. Uh, and, I, and I don't say that lightly, but I do think that he is on the outside, very outside looking in. And I think really your top five in no particular order right now is Zach Steffen, Matt Turner, Sean Johnson, Ethan Horvath, and Gaga Slanina. I think Zach Steffen and Matt Turner really have to show that despite being on teams where they're not going to play that much, remember Matt Turner is scheduled to go to Arsenal this summer. Zach Steffen is a backup at Manchester City. If they don't get a lot of playing time, we have seen firsthand goalkeepers who struggle for playing time with their clubs, and because of that, their sharpness dwindles. And you can't have your sharpness dwindle during a world cup. So hopefully those guys are able to commandeer and figure out a way to get some playing time this fall, whether it is with their parent clubs or on loan somewhere for the fall, just so they can play every single week and make sure that they are sharp for the world cup. But I think if you have those two guys going, it is a toss up between who Greg Berhalter would go with in goal. My money is on Zach Steffen for what Greg Berhalter wants, because in the head to head, I think there's been only one or two matches over the course of the last couple of years. And I know Matt Turner really came on the scene last summer, but there's only been one or two matches where he has gone with Matt Turner over Zach Steffen. And most of that was because of rotation. So when both are available, Zach Steffen is Greg Berhalter's guy. I do think that Matt Turner should be the number one. I think he has outplayed Zach Steffen on the international level. But I don't think that Greg Berhalter will go with Matt Turner if all things are equal and everyone's healthy when we get to the World Cup. That's just my opinion. I also think that the third goalkeeper spot is going to be down to Sean Johnson, Ethan Horvath, and Gaga Slanina. I do not think Gaga Slanina is that third guy. I think it'll all depend on whether Ethan Horvath can put some clean sheets on the board and, and show that in Europe that he can be a quality keeper that plays every single week. If he can, then I think he gets the edge over Sean Johnson. If he doesn't, I think Sean Johnson gets the call and he is the third goalkeeper going to Cutter. Now, keep in mind that Cutter could have 26-man rosters instead of 23-man rosters. In that case, I do think that a fourth goalkeeper get, has, will have to be called in. I think they'll require that. And if that's the case, then I think it's Lenina that's on the outside looking in. But he is a bright mind for sure. Uh, the, the thought about him going to Poland has crossed my mind. But honestly, I don't 
see that happening at least right now because he's not starting for Poland tomorrow. He's not starting for the United States tomorrow. So that means he has time to make a decision on what he wants to do going forward. Thank you, Brian, for that question. Really appreciate you sending that on Twitter. Um, again, Brian is at Ocho McOcho. Um, so I want to move on to the next question, which is from Ray Noriega. And Ray and I go way back. Um, and his question is, and it's in, if you know Ray and I's relationship, you know that this is something that is more of a joke, but it is an interesting question. Why do they never play important matches in California? Well, keep in mind that Ray is from California and also believes that there's so many matches in California that he doesn't really care how many they are, what kind of importance are labeled with those matches, but that the fact is he doesn't have to travel far to get to said matches. But I will say this, Ray, California, as you know, has hosted the most matches of any state. LA has hosted the most matches of any city. And they have just California, the state, and we're not even talking about the whole West Coast, but California by itself has hosted a bunch of important games and a bunch of important friendlies. And the thing I want to, you know, warn people who live out in California who think that, oh, we're getting screwed. We don't get a lot of important games. I think you need to be prepared to hear this. Every game is important when it comes to being a player on the national team. And the players have outright said that fans need to understand that every game for them should be labeled important. Now, if you're talking about competitive matches, look, you've gotten a World Cup qualifier. You have gotten a Copa America. You have two Copa Americas, if you include uh, Arizona in that. You have gotten a CONCACAF Gold Cup final, and you've gotten a CONCACAF Gold Cup playoff all in the last six years. So this is, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. You get a lot of matches. Keep in mind that I live in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. has not had a single match in two years, not a single one involving the men's or women's national teams. And even if you take the women's team into account, it will be 2017, five years, over five years since the last time the Queens, the defending two-time defending champions have shown up at the nation's capital on the East Coast. So everyone points towards this because this question came up because of all the games that have been going to Ohio recently. And I will say, y'all know I'm from Michigan originally, and I have thoughts about Ohio. I will, not, I will, I will save them for another day. Uh, but I will say this, all of these things are cyclical, all of them, you know, Ohio has gotten a ton of matches very soon. There's going to be another crown jewel that us soccer is going to want to go back to over and over and over again. Austin has started to get Austin's had three matches in a year. When you consider that they're about to get the Grenada match on June 10th, that will be the third men's or women's match in the span of a year. And the stadium was literally opened by the women's national team just a year ago. So it's all cyclical. There are going to be stadiums that are going to get a lot of matches because of where they are, because they are easy to get to, because they're easy for U.S. soccer to work with. And the idea is to make it where, yes, I want to see games going all over the place. I want to see matches in places that don't get a lot of matches, but everyone says they don't get a lot of matches and everyone is lying because everyone gets matches. It's just a matter of the matches that you feel are important are the ones that you count. And honestly, all the players on all the national teams, men, women, youth, extended, every game's important for them. So when you have this discourse on Twitter, make sure you leave that part out. If you have not gotten a match in a long time and you're in a city that should be getting matches, you know, 
fairly frequently or at least regularly or at least occasionally, then yes, shout that out. But the whole, we get a bunch of matches, but they're not important. Leave that part out because that is one way to make sure that you never get a match that you deem to be important. Uh, So Ray, thank you for that question. I know what I just said, Ray, is something that you actually agree with. um, But I do think that that question was very important. Keep in mind, again, LA, we, we talk about LA. LA has had three matches in the, in the span of two months. They had the January camp, which was in December. And then they had two She Believes Cups, which I count as competitive because it is a competitive tournament. So to each their own. Everyone thinks that their, their city doesn't get matches, but everyone ends up getting matches. It's all a cycle. And very soon, either the men or the women will be coming to your neighborhood. Get ready. Because when that comes to your city, guarantee you, you're going to call it important. We have some more questions to answer, but we will tackle those on the other side of this break. So sit back and stay tuned. This is the Stars and Stripes FC podcast. Right, we are back and we are answering questions sent in by listeners like you out there. Again, thank you to everyone who submitted questions. I want to go back to my friend Joe Davis because he asked another pretty cool, important question that has been on the minds of people uh, very recently. And that is, if Christian Pulisic leaves Chelsea, what would be the best club for him to end up at? And this is a really intriguing question because when you think about it, Christian Pulisic went from Borussia Dortmund to Chelsea. Borussia Dortmund is a very big club, but it is not one of the someone of a club that people would view as one of the top big clubs on the planet. He went to Chelsea, a team that now is considered one of those top, you know, five, six, seven, whatever you want to call them clubs on the planet. If you think about the super league that was created, Chelsea was originally a part of that. Like this is the, these, they're in the big time. And there's not a lot of places that Christian can go that would be considered either a lateral move or a step up when you leave Chelsea. I think that is the issue facing him when he considers where he wants to go, because I'm sure with the salary and just with this prestige of being at Chelsea, you want to have something on par with that or better. And there's not many clubs that can do that. So if you're thinking about it in the Bundesliga, he could go back to Borussia Dortmund, but that's considered a step down. Oh, it's not necessarily considered a lateral move uh, to leave Chelsea to go to Borussia Dortmund. And I'm not, and I'm not saying that to diss Borussia Dortmund, but that's what it is. Everyone considered his departure a step up in talent, a step up in prestige, a step up in the level of play that he had to deal with. And going back to Dortmund is not going to be another step up. There's, it's not uphill both ways. In the Bundesliga, other than Bayern, there's really no options that would qualify for a lateral move or a step up. In Serie A, a lot of people pointed at Juventus, and uh, that would be cool because West of McKinney is there right now. And honestly, I think Serie A would be interesting because the style of play might cause him to play a little differently. He still gets the, the physicality, but he also gets a little bit more open style of play, and that may suit his game a little bit more. And that would be intriguing. But I honestly, I'm looking at this kind of realistically and saying, I don't know if Juventus is going to 
try and get in another American, even if it's Christian Pulisic. And also, we've heard talked about Weston McKinney going to the Premier League, you know, to Spurs or to Leeds or to whoever. But we've heard about him leaving. So why would they send him out with the guy that he's trying to pull in is trying to come here, come to Juve? I don't know. I'm not certain that Juve is the best place for him. There's Paris Saint-Germain. That is a level, uh, you know, level up or at least a, a level over. But a lot of Americans right now are just having a tough time in France. I don't know if that style of play in France would suit Christian Pulisic and really bring out the best of his game. I think one league that would accentuate his game and really give him a chance to thrive in an open field is La Liga. Yes, there's a little bit of physicality nowadays, but I, I think they have a more open style of play in that league. But the only two lateral moves are, or steps up really are Real Madrid and Barca, and neither team really need them. Um, in fact, I will say I'm a Real Madrid fan. We don't need Christian Blissett. Would it be nice? Absolutely. But he's not playing every day. He's not playing every week when it comes to Real Madrid because they have, you know, two or three stars and maybe even Mbappe if he if he signs, all of whom are younger than Christian Pulisic. And Christian Pulisic is not old. So I think that is not an, a real logistic. I don't think that's a realistic option for Christian Pulisic. But if he wants to go to the league, all the other teams would be a step down. Please don't go to Atletico Madrid. But I think the other teams would really make it where he could thrive. And then you get to this question. We're now back in the EPL. And does he go to Arsenal? Maybe. Does he go to Manchester United? Maybe. But again, all those places are places where the pressure's high and they all consider themselves big clubs and they all have a lot of talent and not everyone plays all the time. There's no guy that's really just starting every single time. And that's what Christian wants to do. He wants to be the guy that they pin in at starter. And that's not, none of those places are going to do it. Then you have the question of, do you put him as the big fish in a small pod or a smaller pod? West Ham could qualify that. He'd stay in London. It's, you know, they're trying to accentuate their stature. They're in, you know, the Olympic stadium and they have a lot of fans and uh, they're, they're known the world over, but it's still a step down from Chelsea. So, um, Spurs, I don't know if he's going to want to go to Spurs or honestly, I don't know if he want to go to another team in London He would that he would want to leave London and go to somewhere else in England. Those are all questions for Christian Pulisic, really. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's not a lot of options for him. And Chelsea, as we've seen, you know, I think a lot of people need to kind of be patient because if you think about it, if he leaves to go somewhere now, he's starting a new club at the time where we need him to be playing a lot of games. And if that team is not signing him to play a lot of games, then he is going to be a guy that may not be sharp when it comes time for the World Cup at the end of November. So a lot of questions for Christian Pulisic. Honestly, the best fit for him may be to stay at Chelsea or to just loan himself out somewhere where he can get some playing time, maybe stay in the EPL and go to a lesser club, but get the playing time that he needs until January where then he comes back and fights for his spot at Chelsea. I want to move on to this question by Ryan Shira. Ryan, he writes, why do we still allow artificial turf at MLS stadiums? Um, this is in response to Atlanta United really facing a, a couple of men's national team, one former men's national team player and one current men's national team player rupturing their Achilles 
in the span of a month. That would be Brad Guzan and Miles Robinson. But when we think about Major League Soccer, you split it up into the NFL stadiums and the soccer-specific stadiums. There are six stadiums in Major League Soccer that have turf. BC Place, which is not an NFL stadium, but it's because it's in Canada. It's a, it has a CFL team there, so they are uh, artificial turf. The other five are Charlotte FC, which plays at Bank of America Stadium, NFL, Gillette Stadium, which is home of the New England Revolution, Lumen Field, home of the Sounders, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, home of Atlanta United, and the only soccer-specific stadium that has field turf, Providence Park, home of the Portland Timbers. Everyone else has grass or at least a hybrid grass, which we're not considering for that because hybrid grass is still considered more grass than turf. And I think the problem with those is, is that really a lot of these are not necessarily occurring on turf more than grass. We just kind of see it accentuated in the case of Atlanta because they had two guys rupture their Achilles on the turf at their home stadium. But they also had one guy who ruptured his Achilles at their practice facility, which is grass. So it's interesting, Ryan, because I think a lot of people would say, yeah, you don't want to see the guys playing on turf, but turf is not necessarily, you know, leading to more injuries on the average than grass simply because there's not that many stadiums in the league that have field turf. A lot of these injuries are occurring on grass. A lot of them are occurring on turf. And I think even if it's equal, it may not be the turf necessarily. It may be just how these guys are playing that the style of play is making it where these have, they have to make decisions really quickly and one plant here or there. And it definitely, and it definitely doesn't have to be on turf. It could be on grass. If you plant your foot the wrong way at the wrong time, it leads to a bad injury. And we've seen guys get subbed off. I mean, Aaron Long got subbed off at Audi Field. Audi Field is grass. So, you know, guys are getting hurt, and I don't think it's necessarily related just to the turf. I just think that the rash of injuries and the bad luck that a lot of players are having, again, is cyclical. I don't know what is explaining it, but I don't think the full 100% answer is these guys are playing on turf and they shouldn't be playing on turf. So I think when it comes to those stadiums that do have turf, I mean, Providence park has considered moving to grass and I think they're heavily considering it. Now uh, the, uh, the stadiums that are NFL stadiums that have field turf, they're not changing it because uh, until the NFL team decides they want to have grass, they are staying at field turf. And even in the case of like Lumen Field, grass may not work up there uh, at certain parts of the year. So it's going to be turf for as long as we can see. And we just have to be able to get used to the fact that some of our stadiums, we're going to have to play on turf. Some of them are going to have to play on grass. So thank you, Ryan, for that question. I want to go back to my friend Ray. He has a question about the style of play for the men's national team. Now that we're years in to this, experiment has playing from the back actually worked no it has not ray um in my opinion it is not because i think a lot of people looked at barca's tiki tocker from the late 2000s early 2010s and how spain did it as a national team basically employing that tiki taka style of, of play and decided that everyone has to do it because that's the only way and i guess the reason why is because I mean, for a while, Spain was pretty much untouchable. They won every single tournament they had, you know, for a, like a few years. There was a, there was a, 
a series of like five or six years where Spain was the best team on the planet and it wasn't close. But I don't think everyone can do that. Everyone, everyone can't play like Spain. Like we have to play like we play. And, and the United States, we're always, I feel like people are trying to always adapt our style to something else. And we just need to find our style of play. We're not a country that plays out of the back very well. Very few countries do. I mean, if you think about it, not even Brazil really plays out of the back all the time. It's something that, you know, clubs are starting to do. So guys are becoming more familiar with it, but no one's really like 1000% well with it. And I think that's the thing is for me, we're going to a world cup. We're going to a world cup qualifier. If we're not 100% ready to do it, then don't do it. You don't experiment on the final exam. You don't experiment at Thanksgiving. I've said it on this show before. And I feel like this experiment was something that we kept trying to do and trying to make it work. And a lot of times it just didn't. MLS teams are trying to do it now. You know, USL teams are trying to do it now, but no one's teaching it at the youth level and it's got to come from there. But at the end of the day, this could be something that we do 20 years from now. But again, it would start at that youth level and have these players from the time that they're four or five years old learning how to play out of the back and drilling at home every single time until it registers and they continue to play that way all the way until they're adult. Right now, that's not happening. We're trying to teach guys who are, who are already used to a style of play how to play something else, and it's just not working. And when not every team does it and you try to assemble it for a national team, it becomes organized chaos and sometimes unorganized chaos. So I don't think it's worked. I don't think it's something we should do. But I, I admit that it is something that it seems like we're going to plan to continue uh, as we move forward. So, Ray, thank you for that question as well. And our final question comes from Melanie Colombo, my friend. Uh, and she asks, is anywhere in Europe, and she says that in quotes, still the goal or is MLS the better call sometimes? And I think, Melanie, you hit it right in the head. MLS is the better call. Sometimes. And honestly, for me, I'll, I'll offer a take playing every week in major league soccer is better than riding the bench for almost every team in Europe. And period end of story It is we've seen guys go to Europe and not be sharp and they lose their place on a national team because when they're called in, they are not sharp. It's incredible how people, there are some people, a, a segment of this fan base that still believes that, being on the bench and just training at any team in Europe is better than playing every week for any team in major league soccer. And that is just not true. Playing every single week anywhere on the planet is better than riding the bench anywhere on the planet. And I mean, if you think about it, we have guys, we've had guys playing in Mexico every week. We had guys playing in South America every week and everyone keeps telling them to get called in. But then we see what happens when someone rides the bench for a while at a club and then they come in and they're just not sharp. You cannot, we're, we have a stronger enough player pool at this point that if guys aren't playing well for their club or if guys aren't even playing at all for their club, that shouldn't mean that they'd be called in because quote, they play in Europe. It's just, it just is what it is. I think uh, an example of that, I mean, not necessarily riding the bench, but at least just not playing well is Josh Sargent. Like, for most of the year, for 90% of his season with Norwich, he has not played well. And that is not a slight on the guy because I really like him as a player. But it's the truth. He just hasn't played well 
for Norwich so far this year. He has struggled at, in his debut in England. And that doesn't mean that he's always going to be terrible. No, he can improve from there. But right now he's not playing well, which is why he has not been called to this national team because his sharpness isn't there. His finishing isn't there. Some of the things that he was doing very well at Werder Bremen just aren't clicking right now with Norwich. And that is something that he has to work on. He has an entire summer to figure that out and then get back. And if he starts on a tear in the fall and he's playing every week for Norwich and he's, and he's just doing numbers in the championship, then yeah, he can get called in. But right now, I don't think that's a possibility. And I think people have to realize that just because a guy is training at you know a big club or playing on the reserves for a, a, a club in England or in, in Germany, that doesn't mean they're one of the best players in our player pool. There are guys who are playing way better, even if it's in a major league soccer In major league soccer, a lot of people have to just recognize that major league soccer is a lot better now than it was 15 years ago. It's a lot better than it was 10 years ago. It's a lot better than it was five years ago. And when people recognize that and realize that and recognize that almost everybody in this player pool at one point was on a major league soccer team or came up through a major league soccer Academy, then you can recognize that playing every week in this league is just as good, if not better than playing anywhere on in Europe and not getting time during games. So that's how I see it. And I know that's a take that a lot of people probably don't like, but that's what it is. It, it you know, major league soccer. I think y'all got to give it a lot of credit. The reason why a lot of these youth players have been able to get to Europe is because of the experience that they got playing every single week right here in America. So thank you, Melanie, for that question. Love you. And that will do it for episode 80 of the Stars and Stripes FC podcast. Thank you all for listening. And thank you especially to those of you who sent in your questions. As always, uh, we encourage you to like, subscribe, rate, and review the show. And we're eternally grateful. Five-star ratings and reviews are especially appreciated. Continue to send your questions in. Continue to send your topic suggestions. SSFCpodcast at gmail.com. And we will keep answering them as they come in. Don't wait for a mailback episode. I want to hear from you all, all the time. So enjoy the rest of your week. And until next time.